22. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 22. Again, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 22. It says here, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which is a, I'm sorry, which lives and abides forever. Because, verse 24, read verse 24 as well. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. For those of us who have been in the church for any amount of time, it may appear at some point where truth and love almost seems to be at, against each other, Okay? For example, what I mean by that is this. If I see or know someone who is living in error, as a Christian, not as a preacher, not as an elder, not as a deacon, but as a Christian, my job would be to go to that individual and say, hey, hopefully I'm wrong, but this is what I see. What usually happens if you do that? What does the other person do, sadly, majority of the time? They get defensive, don't they? They get mad at you. Well, who are you to tell me, you know, that, that I'm living in error? You know, but I'm coming to them in a loving way. Now, don't, now, don't get me wrong. We can come sometimes at an at a angle where it's holier-than-thou type mindset, okay? But I'm referring to when we go to someone out of true love and concern for their souls. They get mad at us. They don't want to hear it because sometimes, they, you know, as the old saying goes, the, 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 the truth hurts. Well, listen, Peter didn't recognize that tension here at all. He gives the idea that truth and love always go together. I mean, you have to do that, but thanks. <laughs> I appreciate it. And uh, truth and love always go together. And, and that's exactly how God has designed his word to be. So I'm going to ask you another question. How would you describe someone's obedience to the truth? Anybody want to answer that? <laughs> How do we describe someone? Well, I'll tell you what. I'll answer it for you. We all have different measuring sticks, so to speak, the way we look at things. When someone's considered faithful or their obedience to God. Oh, well, this person knows a whole lot of Scripture. Well, they must be a great child of God. Well, this person's here at every service. Every time the door's open. Their faithfulness is, is wonderful. That's all well and good. But Peter's talking about love here, Okay. And we talk about love, our actions as Christians, okay, when we love one another, that's showing, that's teaching the truth. And we need to love, our love for others is proof that you have love for the truth. So if someone comes to you out of love and concern for your soul, be thankful, be happy. Maybe it is just a misunderstanding. And that's okay if it is. You should be glad to know that that person loved your soul enough to come to you and say, hey, I was concerned about this. We need to be thanking them instead of rebuking them. Let's turn our Bibles to John chapter 13, the Gospel of John chapter 13. Let's look at verses 34 and 35. John chapter 13.
verses 34 and 35. I was in Luke, I'm sorry, they don't look right. John, John chapter 13, uh, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says here, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We can flip over to Romans chapter 13 at verse 8. Romans chapter 13 at verse 8. The writer here says, Owe to no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. You see, for Christians, it's not a choice between truth and love. For Christians, it is truth providing love. And some people may think we live in an unloving world, okay? And you don't have to be a Christian, per se, to, to, to love people. We know a lot of people outside in the world do a lot of good deeds for a lot of people, and they show acts of love, especially in times of a disaster and things like that. But if we consider this an unloving world, you know, Again, we're strangers here. We are to love. Everyone else around us can be unloving, but as Christians, we are to love. Listen again to verse 23 in 1 Peter. It says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and the abiding word of God. This verse tells us that the word of God is living and that it has life. Now, how would we explain that to someone? If we're teaching somebody, hey, the word of God has life. How do we explain that to them? Could we verbally explain that to them? Maybe to some degree. But our actions speak louder than words, right? Our actions, the way we handle ourselves, the way we conduct ourselves, things of that nature. That is where we can teach the most valuable lessons, I believe. Notice it says, I said, loving and abiding. The word abiding there means to continue in to dwell in, to remain in. That's the idea in which it has. And despite what some people in the world say that the word of God contains a dead message, we know that's not true because the word of God does not take a living person and kill them. The word of God takes a dead person and makes them alive again. That's what the word of God does. It rejuvenates us. It's a changing of our minds. It's a new focus. It's living for something else now and not for ourselves. That's why everything around us we know is perishable. I mean, you drive around them, there's cemeteries probably all over town, right? There's junkyards, there's landfills. All that shows us that everything around us is perishable, but not the Word of God, as we do here in just a few moments. Listen, despite what a lot of people like to say from time to time, the Word of God is never obsolete. It can speak to any language or any age in any situation. And Hebrews chapter 4 at verse 12 says this, for the word of God is living, it is active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit, of joints and morrows, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's a familiar verse. We've heard it thousands of times being preached from this pulpit, but it doesn't, but it doesn't take away the meaning of it. Because it means exactly what it says. It's kind of crazy to think about how the Word of God 
can pierce us. We know that it pierced the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. We know the Word of God pierced us as Christians at some point when we decided to obey the gospel. And as I said, if it can speak to the man who was selling goats in A.D. 63, it can speak to the man selling stocks in 2021. Because the Word of God has not changed. It is not uh, uh, it's not going to be obsolete. It's not destructible at all because Peter tells us it is of an imperishable seed. Look at Matthew chapter 24 there. It's 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus says my words will not pass away. But back in our text, Peter told us in 24 and 25 that all the flesh is like the grass and all its glory is like the flower of the grass, but the grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of God remains forever. You know, people have tried to destroy the word of God before. They tried to wipe it from the face of the earth. The Roman emperor uh, Diocletian in AD, or I'm sorry, in 303 AD, he made an edict to burn every copy that he could find. In fact, he buried a copy in the ground which he thought was the last copy. He built a monument on top of it to show that he had accomplished his mission. Folks, we all know that he failed. Voltaire, the, the, the oh, famous or not, the French infidel as well in 1778, he made an attempt as well to destroy the Bible. He predicted that in 100 years that he would have the Bible and Christianity swept away from this earth. They would be obsolete. They would be gone forever. Well, his mission failed along with his unbelieving predecessors that followed. And the ironic thing is this. Within those 100 years, the printing press in which Voltaire used to print his material on was being used to print Bibles on. I'm not going to call him a famous atheist or not, but, but atheist Robert Ingersoll once boasted as well, within 15 years, he said, I'll have the Bible lodged in a morgue, he said. Well, within those 15 years, something was lodged in a morgue, and it wasn't the Bible. Folks, the Word of God isn't going anywhere. It's here to stay for as long as God decides for this earth to spend. Somebody turn to Isaiah chapter 55 and read verses 10 and 11 for me. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. It's like Bible drill. Man, never gets their first, raise their hand. <laughs> Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. Who's got it? Anybody up? Thank you. Do you understand what the prophet Isaiah, what he's saying? There? I encourage you to, to note that, that verse there in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. God has a purpose for his, his word. He has a purpose for us. His word is to bring us life. But it also gives life as well. Our text said you've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. It said that produces life. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, let's read verses 17 and 18. James chapter 1, 
Let's read verses 17 and 18. James says here, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow or turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Now flip back to the Gospel of John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Jesus says in verse 63 of John chapter 6, he says, if it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. And as you cruise on down that verse, a few more uh, verses of verse 68, you see what Peter says to Jesus. When Jesus turns and looks at them, he basically says, hey, you guys want to leave too? Everyone else is deserting Jesus here. But Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I do not understand how much more plain and simple the word of God has to be to get people to understand what we're going to be judged by. Oh, John 12, 48. I'm going to say that first. John 12, 48, Jesus says, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The words that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Folks, we don't need the Bible plus this book over here to get to heaven. We don't need the Bible plus this person's writings to get to heaven. We don't need the Bible and this or that philosophy to get to heaven. What we need to get to heaven is right here. It's that plain. It's that simple. Let's not overthink it. Let's not make it more complicated than what it is. You know, I'm sure you guys have the, the, the door knockers down here sometimes, you know, the, the Mormons. And when they come, uh, their zeal and their effort puts me to shame. I'll be dead honest with you. It, it puts me to shame. Those guys are dedicated and focused to their purpose. I've never had a lot of luck with them over the years, and I've tried. So a couple years ago, before COVID hit, they came. I said, I'm going to take them on a different approach this time. I said, I'm not going to tell them anything about me being a preacher or going to church. Or anything. I'm just going to just let them talk and just not play dumb, but just let them talk, so to speak, right? They came in, and I let them do their spiel. We had four or five, six sessions going, and I'm obviously taking notes and things like that. Well, finally they come, and I say, okay. I said, I'll listen to you guys. You guys listen to me? Oh, yeah, sure, Josh. Yeah, we'll listen to you. Okay. I go, here's what you guys say. Here's, you know, your book of Mormons as well. You say compliments the Bible. I go, now, I know the Adventists as well. They follow a lot of what Ellen G. White says and William Miller, you know, the, the, the founder and co-founder, if you will, of the Adventist movement. I go, Joseph Smith says that God came to him in a vision in the wilderness. Ellen G. White says that, that uh, uh, Jesus came to her in the wilderness in a vision. I said, my question, guys, is this. I go, why would God send two people totally two different messages? I said, it doesn't make sense to me. I go, I, I can't understand why that is. They didn't have an answer. You know why? Because the answer's right here. There's nothing else they needed to do. Unfortunately, they never came back. And I don't say that in a boasting or bragging way, but I know I planted that seed of doubt in their mind. You know the old saying, it looked like a deer in headlights? 
That's exactly what them boys look like, a deer in headlights. Folks, if that's what the Word of God does, it's all sufficient, as we're going to talk about here in just a moment. And what I mean by that is this. In Luke chapter 16, very familiar story of the rich man Lazarus. Let's just fast forward to the end of it. When the rich man's in torment, what does he beg Abraham to do? Not, 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 not cool to tip his tongue. What else did he ask him to do for his brothers? Send him back, right? Hey, Abraham, listen, send him back. Because they're going to listen to someone from the dead, right? What was Abraham's response to them? No, they have Moses and the prophets, right? What was Moses and the prophets at that time? The word of God, right? Hey, no. I'm going to tell you something. If my dad walked in back here, he passed away last year. If he walked in, hey, guys. I'll say, hey, everybody needs to listen to this. <laughs> you know, it tells us what's on the other side. Maybe I would listen. But, oh, wow, that's, thanks for telling me that. But no, there's no need for that to happen because what we need to know is right here. Right here. And that's exactly what Abraham was telling the rich man there in that story. No, they got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear what they had to say because that is the word of God. And it is all sufficient as I said, and what the Word of God does as well is this. It nourishes life. What time does this class end? What was it? Okay. Whew, better hurry. <laughs> uh, and so the Word of God nourishes life. Parents, when we take our kids to the pediatrician when they're born, we're looking for growth, aren't we? We want to see them growing. If they're not growing, we know that, that something may be may be wrong. We get a little concerned if, if things aren't going like they should. And when Peter says that we should basically crave, you know, the word like a, a nursing baby, you know, it, it is there for us to understand how simple and how we should desire and crave, you know, the, the word of God. Have you ever had to beg a baby, a nursing baby to eat? Well, I mean, I guess you could try, but it's not going to do no good. They can't understand you, right? Babies are hardwired to eat. And if they're not eating, they're not feeding, right? And if they're not feeding, we know something's wrong. That's a sign to us that something is wrong. And the same applies to our spiritual life as well. If we're not nursing, so to speak, or feeding ourselves on the Word of God, how else can we be growing? Which begs the question, what do we measure our spiritual growth by? Do we measure it by the people sitting around us saying, hey, man, I'm better than old Steve over there. <laughs> so I'm better, a little better than him, so I must be doing okay. Well, I'm not quite as good as Don back here, but I'm right in the middle. I'm not the worst. I'm not the best, but I'm right there. Why do we measure ourselves like that if we do? Why don't we strive to be the best that we can possibly be for as long as we have the opportunity to do so, because that's exactly what God expects of us. We don't want to be just a little better than everybody else. Jeremiah chapter 15 at verse 16 says this, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight in my heart. And it just begs the other verse as well, 2 Peter 3 verse 18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. So what the Word of God does is it transforms our life. Reading the Word of God may not be the safest activity that we could possibly do, because the Word of God jabs us. It cuts us. 
You know, it makes us realize, oh, man, that's me. Ooh, I need to make a change. And when we are cut or pierced, if you will, what do we do? Do we, do we say, oh, I'll just flip over here and read this other verse. It's a little more comforting. Or do, we, or do we take that verse and say, man, I need to make that applicable in my life. I need to make this change. Well, obviously only we um, can answer that. But Romans chapter 12 at verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, as I mentioned last night, by the renewing of our minds. I'm going to hurry up and get to this last point here. The benefits only come through tasting, okay? In verse 3, it says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Listen, I've had some, some really good meals over the years. My wife is an excellent cook. Her mom's an excellent cook. I mean, I've, I've got some meetings. I mean, I, I have been fed some wonderful meals. But if I walk up to this meal and I say, oh, wow, this looks delicious. Thank you. I just looked at it, talked about it, sang about it, pray over it. Is that going to do me any good if I was hungry to do that? No. In order for me to be filled, I have to eat that Food And the same thing applies to us as the Bible. Let me give you an example. There's a book of the month club that I am not a member of. I just read the story, okay? And they sent out a survey to their readers, and it said, uh, but, but wanted to know a review on such such a book that they sent out. Well, one of the responses they got back was, asking if they read the book they sent out, that's what it was. And someone said, not personally. Well, how do you not personally read a book? I mean, how do you not? It just made no sense, Right? Well, maybe they meant, well, not personally, but a friend of mine read it. Or maybe not personally, but I read a review about it online. Or not personally, I saw the movie that was out. Well, let's flip that to our spiritual lives. If the elders here sent out a survey asking you if you read your Bible, would you reply, hmm, well, not personally, but my wife reads it. Well, not personally, but my preacher talks about it a lot. Or not personally, I've seen the passion of Christ. You, know, well, you see, that makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. If we want to be fed from God, the word that gives life, nourishes life, sustains life, we have to eat it, so to speak, for ourselves. Nobody can be in the word, in the word, I say world, nobody can be in the word for you. You have to do it yourself. Have you been working late at night? Maybe you have to call your wife up and say, hey, listen, I'm not going to make it home for dinner. You know, if something happened in the office or out at work, whatever it may be. But you know that casserole you made me? Yeah, I know. Can you eat a plate for me so I can be filled? I'm starved to death, but can you eat that plate for me? No, we're not going to do that because we know better. Our wife can eat our plate. It's not going to make us any, any more fuller. It's not going to uh, take care of our craving that we have. We have to take a hold ourselves. My friends, it's never too late to change our way of thinking, to renew our mind. I don't care if you've been a Christian 35 years, 40 years, 50 years, or two years. It's irrelevant. We're here. We're breathing. We're allowed. We can make that change if we want to. So we have two choices as I wrap up here. We can feast on the Word or we can feast on the world. And I hope this lesson has shown us which one we need 
to be feasting on because only one of them is imperative to our eternal home, and that's the word. Any other questions or comments before we wrap up? Well, I appreciate your all's uh, uh, kind um, attention, and thank you for the comments. Thank you for the participation as well. Um, and I guess we'll wrap up there. Thank you. <laughs>